Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On February 1st, the Burmese military mounted a coup, deposing and detaining the civilian leadership of Myanmar. The military, which is known as the Tatmadaw, arrested the de facto civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other key members of her ruling party, the National League for Democracy. The Tatmadaw justified the coup by claiming widespread fraud in elections in November. Elections, incidentally, which the National League for Democracy won in a landslide. The coup is a major setback for Myanmar's transition to democracy. The country was ruled by a military junta from the late 1980s until 2011, Then, under heavy international pressure, including from the Obama administration, the Tatmadaw allowed for free elections which saw the rise of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy. Now, the military has once again stripped civilians from holding power. This is a big foreign policy challenge for the new Biden administration and European leaders long supportive of Myanmar's democratic transition. China, too, is being put in a tough spot by this somewhat unexpected move from the Tatmadaw. On the line to discuss the current situation in Myanmar is John Sifton, Asia Advocacy Director of Human Rights Watch. We kick off discussing what we know about the motivations behind the coup. Then we have a conversation about the significance of large protests against the military. We then have an extended discussion about the foreign policy options available to the United States, Europe, and the international community more broadly to encourage a return to civilian rule in Myanmar. This is a timely episode. I think you will learn a lot from it. I know I did. And I do want to take a moment to plug our premium subscriptions. I haven't plugged it in a while. There are various tiers of premium subscriptions, but in general, the rewards that you get for supporting the show include bonus episodes and access to my daily global news clips service. And this service is something that I created years ago, and every weekday, along with a partner, we curate news stories from around the world that are relevant to the global development and humanitarian community, package them and send them out. And several large aid organizations, large humanitarian relief organizations and NGOs are subscribers to this service and it can be yours if and when you support the show. And I'll post a link to the premium subscription package on globaldispatchespodcast.com and in the show notes of this episode, or just go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. All right, now here is my conversation with John Sifton of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture.
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There was rumors that there might be a coup um, circulating through January, but um, a lot of people didn't really think it was going to happen because the dirty little truth about this whole situation is that the Myanmar military already had immense powers. And a lot of policy experts and Burma experts didn't really understand why the military would seize power because they already have so much. If anything, the civilian leadership you know, is a, is a kind of a fig leaf for them. Uh, the military still controls, before the coup, still controlled the security services um, and vast portions of the economy through its military-owned companies. And uh, we're happy to sort of see the civilian leadership get all the blame uh, or most of the blame for the country's problems while they sit in the back and do what they want to do with wars and insurgencies and killing Rohingya um, while the civilian government gets blamed for it. So, you know, it wasn't really expected that they would do that because it wasn't in their interest, but it did happen. And I think what surprised a lot of people was to find that they actually had um, been quite upset about losing the elections and as they could believe that they could engineer some kind of victory. And when confronted with the realities that they couldn't, they decided to act. Hmm. Even though they didn't lose much power, uh, the o- their overwhelming defeat in the elections was the proximate reason for the coup, you think? It appears so, but I should caution that um, anybody uh, who isn't a member of the Tatmadaw really doesn't really know what the Tatmadaw is going, uh, is about. It's a mm-hmm. very difficult institution to understand. Um, and I think the best the most intelligent person is the one who says that they don't understand it. Um, So it's always very difficult to know exactly what's going on, but it appears that they didn't like the results of the election. I think it's, it's important to remember that the 2008 constitution that governs Burma is a military written constitution that was passed through a bogus referendum. um, They controlled and it always given them immense powers. They had 25% of the legislature, which gives them a, de facto veto over any constitutional amendment to change the constitution. And they have immense emergency powers, which they invoked uh, on the, you know, on the day of the coup. So the the, the constitution was already there, um, allowing them to do exactly what they did, invoke a fake state of emergency and uh, take control. So we are speaking a few weeks after this coup. Uh, What has transpired on the ground in Myanmar in the days and weeks following the coup? Well, I think the first thing that has happened is that the people of Burma have surprised the military through this outpouring of dissent and protest. Um, It's clear, one thing is clear, which is that the military did not anticipate the level of opposition that would come out in the days and weeks after the coup. Had they known this was going to happen, they probably would have taken more uh, 
preparative steps. Just describe the kind of scale yeah. of the protests that, that we've seen in, in Burma right now so far. Yeah, well, there's, there's an enormous movement underway, both just street protests, but also what they call CDM, civil disobedience movement, where people are walking out of work, um, both civil servants and private sector and students walking out of schools and work, uh, hospitals, law <laughs> businesses, um, government ministries, and protesting. Um, so that's going on, you know, and it's been going on almost every day in varying numbers. Uh, there's been violence against protesters. People have been killed, shot. Um, with, with People have been hurt with rubber bullets, non-lethal weapons, as well as, it appears, live rounds in certain instances. Uh, at night, the internet gets shut down, um, has been regularly shut down. And during those hours, there have been arrests of civil society members, journalists, and other people who are linked to the opposition. Of course, there were arrests the first day of the coup of the leaders of Burma, the, the civilian leaders of Burma in each of its states, as well as um, certain key ministers, including, notably, and we can come back to this, the uh, Minister of Finance and the head of the, the deputy head of the Central Bank of Myanmar. And that's important because uh, of the finances <laughs> that, the, that the government controls. So we'll explain that then, like the the because because what you're describing is a series of very targeted arrests. Of course, the arrest of Aung San Suu Kyi got the you know grant grabbed the main headlines early in this coup. But you're saying that other officials, not internationally known, have been arrested, and their arrest is sort of furthering the interests of the military in one way or another. Absolutely, it's very important because it goes to the issue of what the international community is going to do about all this, vis-a-vis sanctions or other enforcement, to um, bring some level of consequences to the military that will get their attention. And that's what we're arguing right now: is that um, the people of Burma have risen up and taken the military off guard, surprised them, and shown the military that they miscalculated. It's important now for the international community to also show to the military that they've miscalculated by imposing a level of sanctions and enforcement of sanctions that the military wasn't expecting. They were expecting sanctions of some type, perhaps listing of generals' names on designations at the Treasury Department, you know, especially designated persons with whom you can't do business or seize their assets overseas. But if you go beyond that and start imposing broader economic sanctions on the military leadership, and the overseas accounts, offshore accounts that the military controls, um, and the revenue streams from extractives, then you start to get their attention in the same way the people of Burma have gotten their attention by pouring out into the streets. And then they start to think, maybe we need to backtrack. That's the hope. But the the money comes in because, of course, it's not just about sanctions. It's also about the threat and anxiety and concerns about looting and stealing of assets. I see that. that So if you get these um, civilian guardrails out of the way, the military could just plunder state resources to fund their operations. Right. A lot of people have been talking, oh, we're going to go back to sanctions. Did they work the last time around? And those are questions that should be raised. But when in discussing that, it's important to understand that the economic situation of the country and its economy in the uh, place in the global economy is fundamentally different than it was in the old days when the junta controlled uh, Burma and Aung San Suu Kyi 
was a political prisoner and all that. It's fundamentally different because the economy is more integrated into the international economy. And um, during the 10-year period of quote-unquote civilian rule, uh, large portions of the Burmese state-owned enterprise economy were moved out of the dark where the, you know, had been plundered in the darkness by the military into the light of, you know, the central bank of Myanmar's accounts, mm. which could be seen by the world bank and the, and the IMF. Um, so there, there were all these efforts to sort of bring dark money into the light. And as a result, the central bank of Myanmar and the central economic bank, I'm sorry, the Myanmar economic bank, and the Myanmar trade, you know, foreign trade bank, and all these state-owned banks had uh, brought money into the lightness and had overseas accounts in U.S. dollar denominations and foreign currency reserves and all that, and that was controlled by civilian leaders like the minister of finance, mm-hmm. and the governor of the central bank. Well, those people were arrested on the first day of the coup, and there was every reason for countries to worry that those state assets would then be plundered, which is why uh, the Biden administration and that when they announced sanctions, they noted that they had already acted before the sanctions were even announced by freezing or blocking uh, transactions out of the U.S. of the Central Bank of Myanmar's funds. Hmm. Why would they do that? You know, that's civilian money because they had reason to believe that the Central Bank of Myanmar was no longer the Central Bank of Myanmar. It was basically the Tatmadaw with a gun to the head of whoever, you know, sends out the transactions. So they blocked it uh, because it was considered to be a fraudulent transaction, not a bank transaction, but an attempt by the military to, uh, you know, take the foreign currency reserves for themselves. So, I mean, that speaks to the fact that early on, it seemed that the United States and several Western countries did seem to take fairly aggressive steps in, you know, the right direction in terms of trying to impose a degree of sanctions of targeted sanctions on um, the, those who were responsible for the coup for the Burmese military. Where does that effort stand now? I mean, I know that you and uh, human rights watch have been trying to build support for these kinds of targeted sanctions what does that look like? Yeah. So the Biden administration has taken the first step and not sanctions, like I said, but also financial crimes enforcement, you know, FinCEN and um, the terrorist financing and combating corruption efforts um, mm. that the Treasury handles. And that's going to get the Burmese military's attention because it's going to tie up assets that they wanted to take for themselves. But down the road, you know, assets are one thing. They're never, you can't seize assets held in the local currency of Burma in their banks, but you can stop transactions in U.S. dollars and euros if you invoke sanctions in the EU and the U.S. Same for Australian dollars and Canadian dollars. They also have these types of sanctions. Um, But it's very important people understand it's not just about seizing assets. It's about blocking transactions in the future because the the government controls extractive industries which have ongoing revenue streams that would accrue to the military. You can block those revenue streams accruing to the military if you use your sanctions regimes, but also your financial uh, you know, criminal laws, anti-corruption laws, anti-money laundering laws. If you use them robustly and vigorously, you can really attack that money 
tie it up. And that really will get their attention because that's the only hope we have right now is that they, they, they come to the conclusion that they've miscalculated. They've already you know, seen they've miscalculated with the people of Burma. So let's show them that they miscalculated with the, with the international community as well. Well, I would say other countries can do beyond that, but I'll, I'll, that's, that's a first step. Well, I wanted to ask you how China fix, uh, pardon me. I wanted to ask you how China figures into this. I mean, right now at the Security Council, you've you've seen limited action. You've not seen sort of yeah. robust like Security Council resolution condemning the coup. You've seen, I think, a presidential statement or a press statement. Um, yeah. Why, what is China's position right now on uh, the coup in their back door, backyard? On the one hand, um, you know, we know for a fact that China would never allow for a robust resolution at the Security Council. But the fact that they allowed consensus for a statement in the Security Council, the fact that they allowed a special session in the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva um, speaks volumes about the level to which they are not happy (laughs) or they are frustrated with what has happened. Um, and may even have been as surprised as we are, or perhaps, you know, somewhat surprised. So where do we go from here? I mean, it would be good if the United States, the United Kingdom, France as permanent members were to really push China and Russia to explain why they won't allow a strong resolution. But we're under no illusion that that's a long shot. Um, and the best we can hope for probably is continuing debate. Uh, there will be a UN General Assembly meeting. You know, there already has been, but a General Assembly action as well. Um, and that should happen, and that's good. But I think we have to not be naive, and we have to understand that if the real pressure is going to be brought down, it's going to be brought multilaterally by concerned countries. Mm-hmm. We know the United States is going to act. The EU, you know, should follow soon, although they need a push to be more robust because they're being a little weak right now. Uh, Canada has acted, Australia, New Zealand. Um, the next step is to get key economies that are integrated into Burma's economy, like Japan and South Korea, to flex their economic muscle over banks and businesses that do business, to tie up the money um, that's going to the military. There are a lot of legitimate business interests with ordinary civilian enterprises in Burma. We're not talking about that. We're talking about telling your companies that do business with the Tatman that they have to either cut off those ties or where that would have an impact on the people of Burma, uh, direct revenue streams or hold them up so that they don't go to the military. Take gas, for instance. You know, huge revenues coming in from gas natural gas reserves, um, natural gas that's being pumped offshore. Um, if you cut that off, if you uh, told those companies they had to pull out and disrupted the supply chain, that would have huge consequences. The people of Burma cut off gas being delivered in kind to Burma. The electricity would go out because that's how they produce it. So instead of that, you know, we recommend to the companies that are pumping the gas and controlling the accounts that get the money, um, to direct the revenues that are supposed to go to the military into escrow or just block them, hold them um, for now, because that'll really get their attention. I guess you're not concerned that should Western countries and Japan and South Korea, allied countries, um, press 
uh, you know, continue this sort of escalatory campaign of of sanctions and targeted financial crimes, law enforcement, that the Burmese military might not just sort of turn to China and China would just kind of welcome them with open arms into their kind of broader sphere of influence. You're saying that that China, Beijing is also sort of perturbed right now by the actions of of uh, the Burmese military to the point where they also might be willing to exert some pressure to restore civilian leadership. Yeah, I think f- first thing is the Tamadao doesn't want to be a vassal state of China. That's the whole reason they let, that's one of the key reasons they let Aung San Suu Kyi out of prison over a decade ago. Um, they wanted to diversify their economy. They saw that the road they had gone down was just destroying the country and by extension them as an institution. So I think what they were hoping for was that the coup would be a blip and that ultimately all of the Japanese companies and South Korean companies and European companies still do business and, you know, the economy would just stumble along. But if you show them that that's not the case, they can't turn to China. Uh, I mean, they can, but the economic terms of the loans and the companies that would do business with them if there were broad sanctions regime imposed on the military would be far, far less and worse than than what they get with with doing business with the rest of Asia and with Europe and the U.S. Mm. Um, So, I mean, they'll do that if they have to, but that's not what they want. They want to be integrated into the global economy. Um, I'm interested in learning your... um your understanding of the significance of this move by Facebook to uh, ban pages or accounts of members of the military. Uh, You know, it seems like, you know, for those of us who have been following Facebook's role in Myanmar for a while in which, uh, in which Facebook was credibly accused by UN special rapporteurs years ago of helping to foment a situation in which genocide could be used against, could be, could be conducted against a religious minority. Um, Now Facebook is, is banning certain accounts. How significant is that move? Do you think? In the grand scheme of things, not very significant. Um, I think, you know, what we, they're not going to like let Aung San Suu Kyi out of prison because they had their Facebook accounts yeah. suspended. They're going to restore democracy when they see that they've miscalculated both the people and the world. And, um, you know, the Facebook is part of that, but really we got to talk in raw economic terms and the anxieties about being held accountable for their abuses. Um, if they see they miscalculated, they may seek some kind of exit. Um, and obviously that's going to be hard to navigate a, a sort of roadmap for them to, you know, exit gracefully, so to speak. But uh, the only way that's going to happen is if there's economic um, leverage imposed on them. And there's a way to do that. I mean, take the gas. The gas is so easy. It's like the Thai government buys most of it. The Thai, uh, pipe, the pipelines go straight to Thailand and the Thai state-owned enterprise um, buys it. The revenues go into a joint venture that is controlled by the French oil company Total. Tomorrow, the Treasury Department, working with Singaporean authorities and others, could just block those transactions. And that flow of income, which is the largest source of the Tatmadaw's foreign currency assets, well, legal assets, I can't speak to the drug trade and stuff, um, would be cut off. 
You could do the same thing with the timber, Myanmar timber enterprises, with the Myanmar uh, mining companies, ME1, ME2, ME3, mine the coal and the silver and the lead. And pretty soon they realize, well, we, mis- we miscalculated. And it doesn't, it's not the case that just because they're U.S. sanctions, they don't have impact overseas. Any bank, even if it's not a U.S. bank, uh, will do what the Treasury says, because if they don't, they're subject to sanctions well, fines themselves for violating the law. So mm-hmm. even a foreign bank like BNB Paribas can you know, face consequences if they do business with sanctioned regimes. So that's what you'll be looking for in the in the say coming days and weeks and months is the extent to which the Treasury Department takes um, like escalatory actions and these kind of uses the say Office of Foreign um, Asset Control and other tools, financial tools to apply pressure on the uh, Burmese military. That's right. We want to be more sophisticated this time. Mm-hmm. Not just names on sanctions lists, which is this sort of go-to tired and old approach. That's tired. The wired way is enforcement. So you know, really get out there and track down where the money flows are and go after them. And then you combine that with action at the Security Council where you're leveraging you know, the threat of legal liability, both for current abuses and past abuses. And, you know, you shun this regime on the global stage, make them pariah status, pariah, you know, they can't be invited to multilateral military exercises. Um, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, you know, is not going to, like, take strong action on them in and of itself, but they could, uh, you know, they could raise concerns in that context, which would be extremely um, embarrassing to Burma. I mean, it is the case that even ASEAN, which is a weak regional institution, back in the day, they almost considered suspending Burma when Aung San Suu Kyi was previously in uh, in prison, which which or under house arrest, which uh, is pretty significant, knowing how ASEAN is usually so weak. Um, so I just have one one last question here. Um, so. Last time that we spoke, I had you on the show to discuss the Rohingya issue. Uh, and I'm curious to learn from you if you think that Aung San Suu Kyi's acquiescence or the per- international perception that she acquiesced to the Rohingya genocide has impacted her ability to rally international support against the coup right now. It, it, it Amazingly, it hasn't. Um, it's been kind of amazing to watch how we and other human rights groups outside the country and many inside the country just don't talk about her. They're talking about democracy. They're talking about the junta. And um, in the first few days of the coup, we didn't even talk about Aung San Suu Kyi. Our releases talked about, you know, restoration of democracy and the outpouring in the streets, you know, it's been less about her and more about, what the military has done and how much the people of Burma don't want them to be in control. And uh, frankly, it's refreshing because we have to move beyond Aung San Suu Kyi. Burma's future is not Aung San Suu Kyi, certainly not the military. It's the people. And they are out in the streets now and they're demanding civilian rule. Some are mentioning her, but they're demanding democracy. And, And that's good because it was a mistake. It was a place focus to make Burma's human rights and democratic aspirations get tied up in a single icon 
And I think we can now move beyond that. And so that that's good in a sense. But it's important, again, that the international community do their part. The people of Burma are you know, sabotaging their own economy. So it would be misplaced for the global, uh, you know, it would be misplaced for the international community to hand-wring and be anxious, anxious about the economic consequences of actions when the people of Burma are you know, sabotaging their own economy to protest what the military has done. I think the only way forward again here is if strong pressure is brought against the military in the streets and then on the economic side and on the international UN side so that they say, oh, we, we, we screwed up. We got to backtrack. We have to figure out an exit strategy here. Uh, well, John, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Great. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to John Sifton. That was very helpful and timely. And just interesting, again, to note the immense power wielded by the United States Treasury in its decision to impose sanctions, just how the entire international financial system is dependent on the U.S. banking system. And so American sanctions do have this real outsized impact. Anyway, will be interesting to see what Janet Yellen, the new Secretary of the Treasury, does. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.